section, Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hello, historical fiction lovers. Welcome to episode eight. You know, I lied to you last week when I said it was episode six. That was actually episode seven of season two. And we're moving on to episode eight. Today, I'm sharing an interview I did in the fall with Michelle Yule. Michelle is a biographer and historical novelist, and she's also an expert on Biddy and Oswald Chambers, along with the book My Utmost for His Highest. We'll be talking today about her book, A Poppy in Remembrance, which is a novel featuring Oswald Chambers and Biddy Chambers, Oswald's wife. But it's... um. It's such an interesting interview, and Michelle just has so much knowledge about the Chambers, and also it's just a, about World War I, because that's when this novel was set. And I found it really interesting when we recorded it and when I listened to it again to edit it. So here's my conversation with Michelle Yule. Michelle Yule, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Lovely to be here, Allison. Thank you for having me. Michelle, you have quite a list of achievements in the field of writing and history. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Um, I am a, 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 the author of 10 published works that uh, encompass a large range. I began with um, historical novellas. The first one I wrote for a Log Cabin Christmas collection came out in 2011. It's a story about Texas uh, when right after the Alamo fell. And that novella collection was on the New York Times bestsellers list. So that was pretty exciting. And then I wrote for a a variety of them. I ended up writing five or six different um, uh, novellas, most of which were on the ECPA list because of the really fine authors I had the privilege of writing with, not me. I'm always listed as et al. on Amazon, (laughs) uh, which may be my last name or my fame. I don't know. Uh, I've now written, though, a biography of Biddy Chambers, which actually came of, I wrote the biography after I wrote A Poppy in Remembrance, because Biddy was such a dominant character in the novel. Uh, she wasn't when I planned it, but she has a way of sneaking in there and taking things over and changing my plot line. So that's what happened with that. Um, I've written an essay about Oswald Chambers, uh, and then my novel, A Poppy in Remembrance, which is the World War I coming-of-age novel, which features Oswald and Biddy as what's called marquee characters real characters within a, a no, novel setting. And um, the book itself was designed around themes in my utmost for his highest, though it's not heavy-handed like that because it's the story of a young woman, a reporter during World War I, beginning the day the war begins, ending the day the war ends. So it encompasses the entire war. war. Um, I've now, wow. just during COVID times, completed a biography of Letty Kalman, the author of Streams in the Desert. So I'm all in historic category, but I'm in both nonfiction and fiction, which is a great place to be if you can do it. Right. That is great. Um, So for today, we wanted to focus on A Poppy in Remembrance. Um, So I didn't realize that you you wrote that before you um, wrote the biography of Biddy Chambers, Oswald Chambers' wife. Mm -hmm. Um. So what inspired you? Well, first, tell us more about A Poppy in Remembrance. Give us a, a really good overview. 
Poppy remembers is the story of Claire Meacham, who begins the war on uh, August 5th, 1914 in London, where her father is taken over as the editor of a Boston paper, but he's the foreign correspondent in London. So she's in London when the war begins. She's been going to college behind her parents' back, secretly hoping to become a foreign correspondent like her father, but they, she hasn't told them. They think she's going to become a history teacher, when in reality, she's been studying languages and politics, not so much politics, but geography, and she's learned great skills as a stenographer, which is how she takes her school notes. So when the war begins, there's a shortage of reporters, and she volunteers for her father's office, and he's very skeptical. They don't want her in the office, but with the men being called up, they have a need for a stenographer, and in she goes, where she meets an American who's in London to go to Oswald Chambers Bible Training College and a New Zealander who finished at Oxford in his killing time, hoping to become a reporter himself. Uh, between the two men and over the course of the war, she comes of age spiritually, romantically, and professionally. So we see the book trans grow with her. At the start of the war, which takes place in London, she's a young woman with a whole world ahead of her. And she, the war is kept at bay, just as the London readers were kept at bay from the war. It was over there. They saw the, some of the results of it, but they couldn't firsthand go there. And women weren't allowed on the battlefield. There were very few female correspondents during the war. So mm -hmm. while she's there, she becomes a believer at Oswald Chambers Bible Training College. And um, these two young men show an interest in her. As the story progresses, her father is distressed by her relationship at the Bible Training College, not understanding who Oswald Chambers is in, and he's so agitated by the whole thing and her becoming a Christian, he puts in for a transfer to anywhere else in the war theater, and they come back and send him to Cairo, Egypt, which is not where her mother wants to go. They'd been stationed there before. Her father speaks Arabic. That's why they sent him there, but she had lost two children in Cairo and didn't want to go back. Oh. Claire and her mother eventually follow after another series of incidents. And while her father went to Cairo to get away from Oswald Chambers, he, to his horror, discovers that Oswald Chambers has transferred there with the YMCA, where he's working at Zaytun Army Camp, eight miles north of central Cairo, ministering to the soldiers, mostly, the, mostly Kiwis and Australians. They're from New Zealand and Australia. Behind, her mother, though, has met Biddy Chambers on board the ship. They traveled with Biddy and Kathleen and Mary Riley and has befriended her in an odd sort of way. And her mother, uh, who isn't as keen about religion either, but decides that her daughter could be better spend her time helping at Zaytun than she could with the Kiwi soldier who she thinks she's fallen in love with. Mm. So they both begin to grow there at Zaytun, Claire and her mother. And all is, is going well for their personal lives, even as the war progresses. And we're following the war now in the Middle East, which is not where World War I stories usually go. Claire is now becoming more exposed to the war because she's meeting soldiers during the war. And then there's a spiritual crisis and a personal crisis when Oswald Chambers dies. They then move on. Her father has meanwhile put in for a transfer. He wants to be in France when the Americans come ashore because he is an American. And they move on to Paris where we see the rest of the war. And Claire's exposure is really greatly enhanced because she sees dogfights. She goes to the trenches, the Spanish falls, all the classic stories that come out of the French trench warfare. And on the last day of the story, well, you'll have to read it to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, it's a glorious day. I wish I'd been in Paris on that day when all the bells are ringing and flyers are flying from the sky and people are cheering and everyone got kissed. 
and Claire's yeah. story reaches its conclusion or its climax and God is great. So that's really great. Yeah. It sounds like it is just packed full of excitement and adventure and um, meaning. Yeah. So what inspired you to write this novel? Well, I went to work one day. I happened to work for a literary, my literary agent, Janet Grant. And mm. I, in 2012, I had written three, two novellas and a short novel. And so we were going to discuss that very day after the workday was over what I would write next. But we didn't get that far because at 11 o'clock that morning, an editor from New York called looking for a writer to write a novel that began the, the day World War I began and ended the day the war ended, needed to be historical fiction and inspirational mm -hmm. as well. And Janet said, well, I'll get back to you on that. And she and I were talking about the ideas we often do, did at the time. And we we're like, man, where do you come up with an inspirational novel out of World War I? Go ahead, Allison. Where do you come up with one? <laughs> <laughs> the war you know yeah she said well do you have a family story because a lot of my um, historical novellas were based out of family stories and my grandfather's story didn't match the criterion so that no I didn't and we were mm -hmm. talking about movies wings you know uh, thoroughly modern Millie just anything out of that time period Snoopy and the Red Baron because we live in Sonoma County and I said you know Lawrence of Arabia that's a World War One story I said wait Lawrence of Arabia there it is it's the Oswald mm -hmm. Chamber story I just read David McCasland's biography, and Janet said, okay, what Oswald Chambers story? And I said, well, he led a revival among the Anzac troops during the war. That is probably the best Christian news of the entire war, was the work that he did there in, in Egypt. And she said, well, wow. can you write it? And, you know, what do you do when your agent asks you that? Sure. Sure, I can. I can. <laughs> and to which she said, I need the proposal on Friday. Wow. This is Monday. So I said, okay. And um, I went home and I, I wrote out a timeline of Oswald Chambers. Like he died on November 15, 1917. So he didn't get through the whole war. So the story had to be broader than just Oswald Chambers. Um, and I, you know, kind of caught up on that. And I thought up a couple of different story ideas and none of them worked. And Thursday morning of that week, I woke up at five and I said, you know, Lord, I am willing to write this story, but you're going to have to give it to me because I don't have a plot. And right then, bing, the first chapter came into my brain and I got awesome. up and I, I wrote it. And then yeah. I went for a walk with my dog and my prayer partner and we walked around the lake like we always did on Thursdays. And I fleshed out a story and we prayed and I went home and wrote chapter two. And then I, uh, I had to do the whole war. So I printed out a timeline of World War One, which is about five pages long. And, a, and you know, I had my skimpy one-page summary of O.C.'s life. And I laid them out on the island in my kitchen with a piece of paper in between. And I cross-referenced. I just wrote paragraphs of what could have happened and how his story worked. And, you know, I've written enough that I knew I usually write a chapter of about 2,000, 2,500 pages. So I need, knew I needed 50 chapters. And I was probably standing at that island four or five, maybe even six hours. I was exhausted at the end, but I wow. had 50 paragraphs. I had the entire book laid out right there. Wow. So I wrote, you know, I, I typed it up, single space. It was 20 pages long. I condensed it to eight Space, you know, pages as you need. I ran spell check on everything, slapped together a proposal, and I mailed it 10 minutes before I went to work Friday morning. And 
there it was. And pretty much that's the whole book. I mean, obviously, as you write a book, as you know, your character's biddy became much stronger. Uh, things that you thought were important faded away and moved around. But ultimately, that's essentially what the story is, that what I wrote standing at my kitchen island seven years ago. Wow. So do you usually plot out the entire story before you write it? I usually have the scenes laid out. Uh, again, characters change and alter, and I, everything is pliable, flexible right. as I go. But, and for example, Anne, the, uh, Claire's mom, ended up another strong character. She and Biddy got along really well because they were similarly strong characters, one from the social world, one from the religious world, and both moving with Claire into a, a positive future. And um, I was driving home from Zumba one day, just driving down the street. And I realized, oh, wait a minute. Claire wouldn't be sitting in London when all this happened. Of course, she would show up in, in Paris immediately. And, you know, went home and had to rewrite uh, five chapters. But uh-huh. that's, you, that, as you get to know your characters in the story and as it unfolds in your own heart and mind, it changes. And that's for the good, I think. So, yeah. Right. So, but this was, was this your first time writing a full length novel? Oh, of course not. So. I. I, it's the first one full length novel that was published, but I've okay. written I, who knows how many in the drawers, just like everyone. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what sets this book apart from other World War One novels? Partly is it's the way that it grows. Um, you, as the reader, grow along with Claire, both in her personal journey on three different levels, but also in your understanding of the war, because Claire's understanding and her witness of the war grows with her maturity to accept what's happening there. World War One is a massive story, and it is full of horrific incidences. You have a choice mm-hmm. when you read about the war is that you can be completely dragged into it emotionally, or you can read it at a, at a, you know, just as a hands-off level and just say, well, there, there it is. But I think that you come to understand a little bit more both about the war, but about how people were responding to the war. And in the spiritual sense, I mean, there was one uh, soldier that Claire talked with in, in Egypt, and she's chatting with him. He had just heard Oswald Chambers, who Oswald and Biddy realized very strongly that the soldiers they spoke to in their camp, they, he gave gospel presentations and Bible teachings, they, they teetered on the edge of eternity. They were either going up the line to Jerusalem in miserable desert, or they were going back to the trenches of France. They needed to confront what was going to happen with their destiny, and that's what they provided. So Claire is talking to this old grizzled soldier and he said, ma'am, I don't know, but what I came to this war so I could meet Jesus. And she said, well, wait, what do you mean? And he said, if I die, I die, but I go to heaven now. And that wouldn't have happened if I'd stayed in Australia. Okay. Mm. That was an actual conversation that Oswald and Biddy had with a soldier. I was really challenged by T. Davis Bunn, a teacher I had at Mount Hermon. I had to make this story accurate to who Oswald Chambers was because he was too important in the spiritual life of many people for me to play around with him. It can be very easy to put words in people's mouths, but I felt very much the need to ensure that there was historical accuracy in what any historical character said. So we've got Oswald Chambers, we have Winston Churchill, uh, T.E. Lawrence, all these people who make comments to Claire or, or to her father or she overhears that play a part in the story including an interview with Mary, Ling- Mary Lee, the daughter of Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general. She met, mm. Claire met her in London during the war. She was there. I took 
what she had to say directly from an article I found in a newspaper in London in 1914, I think. Yeah, 1914, late 14. Um, I had to make sure that there was historical accuracy there. Otherwise, I was a failure, really, as a writer and as a historian. So that actually happened. Biddy had that conversation with someone in the desert. Yeah, that's why I came here. So I'd know wow. who I was going to when I died. Wow. So you mentioned briefly the um, marquee characters. What exactly does that mean? A marquee character in a novel is a central novel who is a, an authentic character, a real-life person who is presented in a novel. So the words mm -hmm. I'm putting in his mouth or her mouth may or may not be necessarily absolutely what they said. That is true of Biddy. Um, Oswald, I was dead on. I had, I think, 10 direct quotes that I used for him. And I modified them when he was talking to Claire. And he spoke with her, you know, half a dozen times, dozen times over the course of the novel. But most of the time, I was using direct quotations from Oswald Chambers or okay. straight out of my atmosphere's highest, which um, is it's the same thing. I mean, Biddy just took down in dictation everything he said. And that's what my atmosphere's highest is. Right. Um, and so how does that differ from a cameo? And would you say like Robert E. Lee's daughter, that's a cameo appearance? Yeah, I, I, it's probably the same. A cameo in her case, because she was just there for oh, a couple paragraphs. So I did take directly what her quotes were. Um, Oswald and Biddy, of course, were sprinkled throughout and they were interacting with the characters. So they were marquees in that sense that I was putting fictional words into their mouths, but I, I tried very hard to make sure they were historically accurate. In fact, there's a letter in there from that Biddy wrote to Claire in the last section when she was in France. And I spent a lot of time trying to find where I had found that letter because I, I have permissions for the quotations I used on, on Oswald mm -hmm. uh, from Discovery House. And I thought, man, where is that letter? And I realized, oh no, at, at the point I wrote, I wrote that letter, I had spent so much time with Biddy that I could put into her words a letter that I actually wrote for her. I was the dictator there. <laughs> or the dictation <laughs> person there. So, you yeah. became you. You got to know her so well that you. It was really a peculiar thing. I mean, I probably spent an hour trying to track that down and tell you, I said, "Wait a minute, I wrote this." <laughs> <laughs> that is that is amazing. Wow. So then, what other kinds of research did you have to do to incorporate these real people into your novel? My husband's favorite book is Seven Pillars of Wisdom. So I just went to that book and found an appropriate battle and comment from T.E. Lawrence. Um, I read, I, and I'm also a blogger mm -hmm. and I ended up writing something like, I don't know, 50, 60 blog posts about various aspects of World War One, And it all came out of the research I did, which was massive. I mean, we went to, for the Egypt section of the book, we went to an Egyptian restaurant for dinner. I had to be able to describe Egyptian food in 2013, the year I was began writing Poppy, my husband had a business trip to, to Scotland and England. And just before I went, Robin Jones Gunn, the writer, saw me at ACFW. And she said, Michelle, I just heard about your book. I have a friend you have to meet in Scotland. Well, I was only in Scotland one full day. And her friend oh. only had time for lunch one that same day. He was in Glasgow. Oh I was in Edinburgh. I got the train to see him. But he was a member of the Oswald Chambers Publication Association. So, yes, I had to make that connection. Of course, it's friend of Robinson. It's totally fun. But the first thing I said to him was, have you thought about writing a biography of Biddy? Because she's, she's changing my storyline. 
And Nicholas laughed. He said, well, no, but maybe you're the person to write the biography. And I laughed and said, no, I'm a, I'm a novelist, but darned if I didn't write the biography right after I finished Poppy because I just <laughs> felt I knew her. And of course, I'd fallen in love with her. So, um, right. yeah, she changed my life. So. <laughs> Typically. <laughs> Thanks, Biddy. <laughs> That's great. So is there anything you want to tell us about her? I mean, you, you know her so well. And after writing this book, you wrote, is that the first time you really wrote nonfiction other than blog, blog posts? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, in, in terms of, of publish, publish, publication, I'm a genealogist and I've written family histories and a variety of other things. I've been, I've been writing about history for a really long time or historical data and information uh, yeah. Biddy Chambers was an important character, Char- not person. She wasn't a character. She was a real person. <laughs> she was very, she was, In your well, book, she was a character. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. It was so easy to write the biography because I already knew her really well. Right. <laughs> so it was funny because I had to be careful not to give her dialogue because no, Michelle, this is what, this is your biography. You have to be really firm. <laughs> you can't invent lines for her. She probably would have said that, but you can't assume that. So, um, she married Oswald Chambers and uh, the, together, they were only married for eight years. He died in 1917 in the war. And she took down everything he said during those eight years, seven years of marriage. Um, they opened a Bible training college. She sat in the back and took down absolutely everything he said. She was a phenomenal stenographer, could take take down at 250 words a minute. Uh, and then she followed him with a, a two-year-old child to Egypt during the war. Now I ask you, it, who in their right mind would get on a, a ship and go during the winter off the coast of France with U-boats there uh, oh to uh, an Egyptian uh, army camp in the middle of the desert in the time before good water with cholera struck with a two-year-old and there were no vaccines. I mean, my husband invited me to come to Grenada to meet his submarine during the war, you know, the invasion of Grenada. And did I go? Of course not. I, I My children and I stayed home. We missed that one. And I they, they all had their shots. <laughs> Off Vidy went and the ministry that came out of that was phenomenal. It's just lives that were given completely over to God to his glory and what wow. a blessing. And yeah. we have my utmost first highest as a result and twenty nine other books. Right. So tell us about the unusual serendipity that that occurred the day after you wrote about Oswald Chambers' death. Oh, my word. Um, that in my real life was uh, Mardi, uh, no, it was Tuesday. It was Mardi Gras. And uh, we, I did a, a couple of days of research at a recent college, which is where the Oswald Chambers papers are. And all I'd really done was look at photographs because I needed to picture what Zaitun looked like. I've never been to Egypt or I've been mm-hmm. to army camps, but not to Egypt. And um so we had three photos we thought were from his funeral. And that was the day I was writing that story. It was hard to put together because at this point I've been writing about a year. Oswald was a real person to me and he died. And I was bereaved. I mean, I knew he was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> In the story, it was historically true. But here he had died and he becomes so real. And so when I finished the chapter, I turned off my computer and I, I just grieved that whole day. And the mm. next day was the first day of Lent, the Ash Wednesday, of course. I dressed completely in black. I went to work because I'm still grieving. I go to church. We have our Lenten dinner. But I can't even talk to people because I'm still so troubled. So I go up to the choir loft because we're going to sing all that dirgy Ash Wednesday music. And mm. I cheated and I looked at my phone. 
she was up with my email. And there was an email there from a man in Australia. And the subject line was looking for information about Oswald Chambers in Egypt. Well, that's unusual. And I opened it up and he said, actually, I'm not looking for Oswald Chambers. I'm looking for information about, my, about Biddy because my grandfather was a YMCA secretary in Egypt during World War I. And my grandmother was there as well. And my aunt was born there and they named her Biddy. So I wonder if she might have known Biddy Chambers. Um, I know he didn't know Oswald Chambers because he got there three days before Oswald Chambers died and he went to his funeral. And oh I have photos. <gasps> wow. <laughs> you know, I told that story to Eric Metaxi. He goes, Michelle, that's a, that's a miracle. Writers, that doesn't happen to writers, the biography. It doesn't happen to writers. And I said, I know. So that was me screaming. You heard it there from California. <laughs> immediately emailed him back and gave him the information he needed. And he sent me eight photos, eight photos. It confirmed the three we had and it was five more. And I just was blown away. I I actually think I cried that day. It's like, well, how could this happen? And I, that was the biggest one of my whole writing life. And I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. That, that can be, I take another one to be blown away, but that one was just so amazing. But, during the course of writing the two books, Poppy and Biddy, I had something like a dozen really unusual things happen just in terms of writing it. Stuff would fall into my lap, books practically off the shelf. People would send me random emails, conversations with people would turn up. And it was amazing how they all worked together. So I actually wrote an entire little ebook uh, writing about Oswald and Biddy that I give away for people who subscribe to my newsletter because oh, it's... Neat. It was such a blessing to uh, have all these amazing stories, and it was such great encouragement for both books. So I hope every writer has blessings like that because they're incredibly sweet and glorious, and it keeps you going really well. <laughs> right. So the the main character, Claire, mm-hmm. Claire Meacham, um, she was very involved in the YMCA, right? Um, well, um, she became a volunteer with the YMCA while she was in Egypt, actually working for her father, taking down notes and helping with um, doing background research for reporting and then doing some reporting on her own as well. She began to blur- flourish there in her, her sense of what it means to be a reporter and her skills. Uh, she began writing for publication while she was in Egypt, but twice a week with her mom, went out to Zaytun to speak French with the soldiers, to listen to Oswald teach. That's why she went to encourage their relationships with Biddy and Kathleen, who grew up there in the camps, and if possible, minister to soldiers. But Claire was dealing with other things because the two soldiers, or the the YMCA worker and the soldiers were both with her in Egypt, um, asking interesting questions. (laughs) (laughs) I see. So what role did the YMCA play during World War I? The YMCA had a really important role during the war. It it was the equivalent of the USO in the Second World War. It provided spiritual sustenance, um, but it also had libraries, lending libraries. Uh, They would show movies such as they were during the war. Um, Postage. I mean, the the YMCA in Cairo during the first year of the war mailed on behalf of soldiers one million pieces of paper. I mean, it just was what kept them going. And Oswald Chambers was getting ready to go up the line um, for the taking of Jerusalem. The um, Egyptian forces, the, the leaders had asked that there be a YMCA 
uh, secretary with every unit that went up because they expected it to be terrible. And uh, it was bad, but God intervened there. That's a whole nother story and a couple of blog posts that are phenomenal as well about how God worked in the taking of Jerusalem. But O.C. didn't live that long. He died just before going. But, you know, you can see God's hand in hindsight. I, I talk about that in talks I give about the chambers, but mm. he he was going up the line. And so he was preparing Biddy to take over the running of the camp. As it happened, she took over the running of the camp because he died. And one of the most read posts on my website is, why did God let Oswald Chambers die so young? And after a lot of thought and, and praying and, and looking through things, I believe that Goswell died young so that God could be glorified because she never would have written my utmost for his highest if he had lived. It mm. simply wouldn't have come to pass. And and that book, I mean, they used to smuggle it behind the lines to prisoners of war during World War II. Brother Andrew carried it across. It was just of such great importance to so many people spiritually. Um, and, you know, that's God's severe mercy, right? That right. sometimes his, Special people have to die so that their words and who they are, the story can get spread further than it would have happened had they just lived themselves. Mm. Interesting concept. Yeah, it is. So we're all living through a pandemic right now. And Mm -hmm. you wrote about the Spanish flu of 1918. Um, What what role did that play in in a poppy in remembrance? The flu turned up in France, probably from the Americans. Frankly, it didn't come out of Spain. Um, Spain was the only neutral country, and no one else would allow stats to be um, uh, recorded or known. So um, (laughs) because it involves uh, the security of your troops. So information like that is is usually very closely held. um, My husband is a retired Navy commander, so we have all this down. So um, truth, that's part of truth strength, and you have to keep that secret. So in France, Claire and her father are hovering on the uh, in Le Havre on the docks, waiting to to see if the troop transport ship that isn't coming and has flu on it, and they get arrested as potential belligerents, which often happened to reporters during that war. They were um, considered potential spies, and so they're. They are um, taken aside ashore. Well, they weren't ashore. They were taken to an American colonel who interviewed them and only got off the hook, if you will, because Claire had written a report or a, an article in Stars and Stripes magazine. And she said she was a disciple of Oswald Chambers and he had known Oswald Chambers. So he was released. But mm. that flew, we follow it as it goes through France. Um, they're exposed. There's a terrible... Um, situation in Paris toward the end of the war and a moment where Claire thinks she has lost everyone. My grandfather had meningitis during the war and he didn't go to to France because of that um, saved his life. And there are a lot Mm -hmm. of stories like that where people get come down with some odd illness that takes them out and saves their life. The war was horrible. Um, Part of my research is we went to the Somme, my husband and I, and um, a very sobering place. The, there's so much lead in the earth in the Somme River Valley, which is gorgeous, a beautiful valley, that they won't get really healthy crops, they think, for another thousand years. They oh can't eat goodness. fish out of the river. And this is 100 years later. The most yeah. recent deaths from World War One were about 10 years ago. Some people picked up a canister gas and dropped it, and it <gasps> killed them right then. Even now, the French farmers, um, they bring up, 
can gas canisters every single month. They there's designated spots in each canton or area where they can leave what they've pulled up. And we stopped in, in front of a large crucifix just standing there. It's probably 15 feet high. And at the bottom were a dozen canisters of gas. They wouldn't even let us out of the car because it's too dangerous. And this is a now it's 106 years, 102 years since the end of the war. War is a terrible thing. But again, you would know yeah, that. Yeah. Learning about the Spanish flu, is there anything you can tell us about the role it played in history? Well, it killed, what, a quarter of the population or a third of the population? I don't remember the exact number now. It went around the world. It's like the pandemic we're having this. This is not anywhere near as brutal in, in terms right. of death rates. Excuse me. If you've had COVID, I apologize. Really, this is the first time, what, 100 years where the world has had to stop because right. it's it's everywhere. And interesting times. What What lessons do you take from the Spanish flu? Well, enjoy the people you have around you now and Spanish that was different is that people would stand on a street corner and then they would be dead by nightfall. That's not so right. much true of COVID. There are, right. yeah, but it still was a terrible, terrible thing and uh, changed many, many lives and the fortunes of some nations. It may have been partly why Germany lost the war. And frankly, Germany should have won the war because they had everything going for them. They just had to do that last onslaught. If they had been able to take Paris before the Americans got there, we would be speaking German. Mm. Um, or I'd be speaking Italian because my grandparents wanted to come to America. Mm-hmm. And that's why history is important to read. I, you know, one of the questions I know you ask is what's the importance of reading historical fiction? Mm-hmm. I, I see historical fiction in the sense as it can be, if done correctly and with an, a, a, an eye towards complete accuracy, it can be a, a mirror into a time that can reflect our own times. We can learn much from it if we take the lessons from it that are there. We can draw lessons now from World War I. We can't draw lessons from today because it changes every single day. But some of the research I did in terms of how to protect yourself, I wear a mask all the time. And my husband's a COVID expert, as is my daughter. But Mm. there are things that you can do and, and ways you care for people that it may be hard to see in the moment, but if you reflect back on the past, you can see there them there. And literature provides us that way. We can't experience everything in the course of our life, but by reading about it, we can gain insight. And when we confront it, we can respond in accordance to what we've known from the past in our own reading. It can be very valuable. And I think it is. And there's that great quote too, Allison. If you want to know history, political history, you read history books. But if you want to know social history, you read novels, historical novels. Yes. That's how you learn how the people actually lived. Right. Yeah. So why the title, A Poppy in Remembrance? How are poppies associated with World War One? Well, poppies were originally, it's from the, the um, poem originally about um, the poppies in, in fields, Flanders fields, the poppies grew. You see them yeah. everywhere, of course. It's almost a shorthand for World War One, but with fewer letters, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, a poppy, and she, Claire and particularly Nigel touch on this several times during the story. A poppy is a symbol from Greek mythology too of of rebirth and from the poppies by remembering history, by remembering what happened during the war, we can rebirth our society, our civilization, our relationships. If we take into account those lessons we learned from history, Uh, it becomes a sort of running joke as well. Um, The poppy, the poppy petals, flower petals through the story, but that's an insider with Jim, the American YMCA man. Mm, Cool. Um, So you, you already mentioned that your final scene takes place in Paris on November 11, 1918. 
Um, can you tell us what it was like on that day? Or did you say as much as you want to say about that? Well, in terms of the story, um, it was, you know, Claire and her mother are walking the streets of Paris, and it was just so glorious. I mean, the, the young mm-hmm. Americans who frankly looked like gods to the French when they came ashore earlier in the year, marched through the streets, people were flinging their hats, uh, taxis were giving everyone free rides, the bells did not stop tolling. I mean, uh, they just rang all day long. Uh, Paris, or the Eiffel Tower was able to be lit up again. It had been black for the whole year. Um, mm. People were just ecstatic, and it was just such a wonderful, glorious day. Oh, lovely, lovely. And it was just, that was the best scene to write. I mean, it was the last one of the book, but it was also just so much fun because there was so much energy and, and so forth. On that trip to the Somme, we had spent the night in, we spent a couple nights in Paris and went out to the Somme. And we walked the whole length of, that Claire and her mother walked, and I got to the Champs Elysees, and I just turned around to take in the whole um, vision of, of Paris. And it was, so fun to imagine the flags flying and just the cheers and the Vive la France. And, you know, it's mm, it a great yeah. day. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so what are you writing now? Can you tell us about it? Well, I just finished, uh, as I said, a biography of Letty Kalman, a very different person mm. from Biddy, but just as important with the book she wrote. And I'm, <laughs> I'm taking a break. I'm trying to scan all my documents and get all of my my photo scan because I live in this high tire zone and I'm tired of hauling eight boxes of photographs, you know, oh. every, every time I evacuate. So I'm yeah. a little bit break here. I'm looking back on some of the novels I've written in the past, several of which are, are nonfiction or excuse me, historical fiction. And we'll see everything I've written has been prompted somehow. And so I'm just sort of waiting for the next prompt from the Lord to see what it gives me. And yeah. I don't know at the moment, but it's, it's, the whole world is open and history is great. And so we're, so is life actually. So <laughs> I can hardly wait to see what happens next. That's right. not a very good elevator pitch, but I don't have an elevator right now or That's <laughs> anything. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. Now you jumped ahead to my question that I like to ask everyone. Is there any more you want to say about how you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Is there more you can unpack about that or? Well, I was thinking earlier, because I knew your question was coming, that I really like memoir and um, personal memoir. But a good historical fiction told from a strong point of view, individual point of view, is in a sense an historic memoir, because it's you're seeing the events of time unfold before your eyes. I mean, I love to look at those photographs from 1900 and 1905. Mm-hmm. The earliest photograph I've seen is of Dolly Madison, which is about 1825, 1830. Mm-hmm. I love to look at that because it gives you a glimpse, not just of that august individual, but also if you can sneak or look around the corner, you can see what else is happening behind them. What did the buildings look like? Look at, you know, Tokyo 1901, which is when Letty Kalman got there. The entire, you know, streets were filled with electrical um, poles with like 17 electric lines through them. I mean, I never see that. I was, you know, you just don't see that anymore. And right. you know, here come trolley cars and things like that, that it's just a different way of looking at life. And it's, it's, I think it's valuable to look at that way. Yes, of course, we move forward, but we need to learn those lessons from the past in order to not make them again. And uh, yeah. many people forget that. <laughs> That's true. Very true. So, Michelle, it was great talking with you. How can listeners purchase A Poppy in Remembrance? Poppy is available on Amazon. That's where you can find it. And um, 
just a poppy. You have to put the whole thing, a poppy in remembrance. Or my last name, Ewell, U-L-E, will turn up. Right. Because there are, as you've mentioned, there are a lot of World War I books that have poppy in the title. Mm, yes. And I'll make sure I link to it in the show notes so listeners can find it there easily. Thank you. Um, where can listeners find you online? What's the best way for them to follow you? Uh, just it's michelleyule.com, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-U-L-E.com is my website. Mm-hmm. And I'm on most of the social media sites as well. Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, friends, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope you head to the show notes in order to find links to Michelle's books, um, especially A Poppy in Remembrance. You can find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. If you enjoy this podcast, please hit subscribe. Also, it would be great if you could leave a star rating or review on whatever podcast app or platform you use to listen to the podcast. I also want to invite you to join our Facebook group on Facebook, obviously. If you just search for Historical Fiction Unpacked, the Facebook group will come up. It's called Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. Um, It's also, I will provide a link for it in the show notes. So you can find everything by going to the show notes. As usual, I'd like to leave you with a quote today about history. Theodore Roosevelt said, the more you know about the past, the better prepared you are for the future. So keep reading historical fiction, my friends, and I'll talk to you again next week. 